This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Talking With... And I'm in here with the homie Maher Mazahi. How you doing, man? Yeah, doing good. Um, feeling very sick today. So if I start coughing, it's uh, that's that's what it is. Um, <laughs> but other than that, life is good. Yeah. So these 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 start all the same way. So what club do you support? I I don't actually support a club. Um, between '99 and like 2018, I was very very Arsenal. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And I just sort of as I as I grew into journalism and I grew into African football, I just sort of grew out of love with Arsenal, especially when we started signing players like Mathieu Debussy, Olivier Giroud, players like that. <laughs> um, and so I, I just I just like watching, to be honest, African football. That's I don't support anyone. I support the African teams when we play in international competitions or in things like the Club Club World Cup. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't really I'm enjoying Arsenal's run at the moment, but I wouldn't call myself a supporter. I don't watch every match religiously like I used to. OK. And what country do you support? Um, I'm Algerian, so I do support Algeria in every competition. But other after Algeria, I'll support any other African team. So uh, we usually send five teams to the World Cup. I'll be mm-hmm. supporting all five teams. Where did you grow up? Slash, where were you born if they're the same place? They're not the same place. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. Um, wow. which is northeastern United States. Mm-hmm. And then Detroit has a river. And just across the river is Canada. Uh, Canada is to the south, actually. Is it Windsor? Um, is that the country that's exactly. on the other side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's the city, yeah. No country is Canada. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Windsor, Ontario. So from the age of 2 to 24, 25, and just about until I finished university. Uh, that's where I grew up. And uh, yeah, and then I moved to Algeria. Got you. And I've learned to ask this one over the course of the podcast. What, if any, was the extent of your playing career? Did you have one? Did you play in school teams? Did you go semi-pro? Like, what was the footballing? What was your footballing experience in in Ontario? Uh, I used to play for a club called Windsor FC Nationals, and it was the best club in the city. Um, one of the best in Ontario. So we would often go up against teams from Toronto, uh, teams from uh, Ottawa, London, other places in Ontario. And we would also play in the States. So we'd play in the States, I believe it was in the fall and then in Canada in the spring. So it was a year-round thing. It was a thing where like in almost all North American soccer clubs, you have to pay to play. Mm. But we played a lot of tournaments and it was a pretty high level. I mean, there were players from Windsor FC Nationals, from my team, that actually ended up playing pro. Uh, a few of them with Canada under 20 caps. One of them played for Canada four or five times. It wasn't like a high level. It was, I would say, I, I was just about at the collegiate university level, but not like a division one scholarship program, have aspirations of being professional, but I could play. I, w- I was decent, but I was never, I never had aspirations or even the faintest dream of being professional. I knew I wasn't that good because I knew I played with players that ended up being professional. And I knew they were better than me, but at the same time, I, I could hold my own. I was, I was a good player, but never, never pro. What position did you play? 
I bounced around. I started off as a striker, um, and then most of my adult life, I was uh, mostly in midfield, so central midfield, defensive midfield. In the high school championship one time, we played against a Canadian national team striker, uh, Lucas Cavallini. So he was uh, coming down from a high school in Toronto. I think he was 17 and I was 19. Mm. And at the time, I'd been working out all year, so I was a little bit stronger than I am now. And I remember I was a defensive midfielder and he was a striker. And my sole job the whole match was to shadow him because they only had him and this other South American kid. I think it was Venezuelan. And then they had like eight hockey players, whereas we had <laughs> eight or nine ball players. And we played them in the final. We ended up winning one nothing. So that was like one of the highlights of, of my career was winning that provincial championship against Lucas Cavallini. And he's one of those players that, you know, he's played for Canada now, what, like 30 times and he played at the World Cup. Yeah, he was at year. the World Cup. He was at the World exactly. Cup. Exactly. So. so, but I could see just from then, he was younger than me, he, but he was so strong already at that time. He was so good technically. You could see that there was a difference. You could see what the professional level was mm. and I knew I wasn't there. But that's cool that you can say you played against somebody that played in a World Cup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... See, I, when when I was born in Halifax, we moved to the States when I was six. But I remember wanting to play football when I was a kid. And I remember we would go to this house of somebody that was a Dutch family. And it seemed like a full-size football pitch to me. But I, I'm sure it wasn't because obviously I'm five, six years old. But I just remember, you know, playing and we, they would have like pickup games and things. But then we moved to the United States and football became just a background kind of thing, especially for me, because basketball is probably my first love, but I always remember wanting to play. So what was the experience like just the, the, the footballing culture in Ontario? I've been to London and Toronto, but not mm. long enough to get like a, a, a taste of it, if you will, because I, I would assume we're the same age. I'm 32. I'm sure you're around there. What was that like? Well, it was interesting because the Canadian football landscape is very, very much steeped into its immigrants and, and the communities they form. Mm. So, for example, in the Windsor League, you would have teams like uh, Titonia, which is a German club. You would have teams like Hellenic, which is Greek. You would have the Serbs, the Croatians. And so these you know, groups, they've, they've immigrated. They, they have their own associations. At times, they have like a, a banquet hall with a, you know, a soccer field in the back. And that's where we would play. And that's how the league would be formed. And so you didn't have to be like, I played for Serbs for, for two, three years um, when I was in university, just for fun. You didn't have to be Serb to play for Serbs. You didn't have to be Croatian to play for Croatia. <laughs> I was about to say, like, it was just, how does that work? No, no, it's just, even though most of the players were Serb, but still, it was just like a way of, I don't know, just that, that's where, you, where, where the football culture comes from. And that's, those are the communities in Windsor. But for example, I remember going to Toronto when we would play the Ontario Cup. And there would be teams from Brampton, Ajax, um, where else? North Mississauga. And they were all like Jamaicans. Uh, they were all like, uh, yeah. And they were, they were like really, really good. But same thing, really based in its immigrant community. And so that's how I would explain the, the football landscape in Canada is that you have a lot of great players, um, but it's not as well structured, not as organized. Um, most of the kids have to pay to play. Mm. Um, and then obviously it's the university, you know, system, but like in the U S you have division one universities and that's where the MLS is going to go get its players from the draft. Mostly in Canada, you know, you're never playing for a Canadian university and then you're going to get, you know, selected to the MLS. Now we have the <laughs> Canadian premier league. So mm. I guess there's a streamline there. It's just, um, it's not as competitive. It's not as serious. Anybody that's anybody that's really good. will usually, you know, at the age of 14, 15, 16, either go to the States or most of them just go straight to Europe. Is there an academy system in Toronto? I think there is now. I feel like Toronto FC has like yeah, an academy system. Exactly, but, but, yeah. but did that exist when you were coming up or it was just... No. Yeah. No, not when I was coming up. What we would do is um, if you played well, so I got invited to one of these. If you played well for a few games, you would get scouted and or your coach would nominate you and you would go have, they would have regional tryouts. And if you're good for the regional team, they would have camps like two, three, four times per year. This is the national team setup. You would get invited to the provincial tryouts. And if you were good in that provincial tryout, then you would be integrated into the national team. So that's how they did the scouting. It was very much an inside out approach. Mm. Um, but the MLS really 
didn't get, I don't know when Toronto FC was formed, but like growing up, there wasn't, it wasn't until I was in high school really that there was a Toronto FC Academy. Um, mm-hmm. That's what we started hearing of. And we would play against them sometimes, but still it wasn't, didn't seem like it was the greatest level. It's not, you would expect a professional club academy to have the very best players. And that wasn't necessarily the case. Wow. So yeah, it's not really, that's what I'm saying. There's no real clear high level path, um, you know, going from, like these clubs that I, I spoke about are completely amateur. The Hellenics, the Tetonias, the Croatia, the Serbs. Um, the only professional clubs are the MLS ones, but I think very, very few of anybody from their academies actually makes it into the senior teams. Uh, it's just not very, it's not very structured. In in the States, it's pay to play. And I guess that culture has gone to Canada or maybe it's just yeah. the same kind of way. But it was thing. worse in the States because I remember we would play mm. against teams like Vardar, Michigan Metro Stars, and we would be, they would be, I remember... That was one of the conversations that they were paying thousands of dollars per year to be a proper travel team in right. Michigan. Right, right. Yeah. So, so I was going to say, like, is the amount of money in Canada the same as in the States? And if it is or if it's somewhere close, as someone who's an immigrant background, I'm sure your parents come from Algeria, your grandparents, whatever it is. How were you like, was, was there like a struggle in the house to make sure that my hair had enough cash so he could go to these teams? Or was it somewhere less? It wasn't as stressful. Yeah, so so Canada Canadian clubs, even the really good ones like Windsor FC Nationals, they were never as much as the states. So we would often be ten times cheaper. So we were paying, I think, around three hundred dollars per year, uh, which is still not nothing. But I mean, but that's not like that, that's yeah. like a month in the states or something like that. Exactly, exactly. We didn't have the professional. Some of these clubs, like I said, Vardar, they would have professional co- waza. They would have professional coaches for like 13, 14 year old kids, and they would have you know three sets of jerseys or four sets of jerseys, and they were going to tournaments every weekend, you know, in different places. So they were traveling way more too. So it wasn't ever at that level. And yeah, growing up, I mean, there were just like a few years where I think it was a little bit delicate. But my parents did a good job of fronting and and not really showing that it was bothering them. But mm. uh, if it was really bad, I know that the clubs, even Windsor FC Nationals, would. Uh, I mean, if you went to them and said that you couldn't afford it, then they would make an effort. I remember there was a few kids that, that couldn't necessarily pay and they were uh, they were exempt. I mean, maybe this is a stupid question to ask a North African, but I will ask it. How did you get bit with the football bug then? Like what got into you? Like, I'm, I'm sure your answer is going to be it's just in me from birth, but I would like to know. No, that, that really is it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, <laughs> I, I don't want to be boring, but like it's. I remember the 98 World Cup and I remember my first memories, you know, watching there was some kind of commercial with Del Piero or something and watching with my brother and my cousins in the basement. And then I remember the France Croatia match again, like doing something around the house and my parents calling me and hey, this number 10 on France, he's Algerian. Um, Watch him. His name is Zidane. And then I remember the final. So it's very much my family, the, the environment that I grew up in, people watching the World Cup, people being interested in it, um, telling me all about it. And then, uh, to be honest, for a few years, it wasn't very easy. I mean, before we had, like, direct TV satellite, it wasn't very easy to follow at, the, like, the Premier League at the time or to watch a lot of, yeah. I don't know if it was, uh, there wasn't any streaming, you know, back in the day. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a struggle. And at the same time, like you said, I kind of got bit by the basketball bug. So Vince Carter uh, versus Alan Iverson in 2001, <laughs> that was like. <laughs> don't remind that me, big, <laughs> That was a big thing. I was a big Vince Carter oh, fan you know, for, for man, three, four I years. I was like. I was a huge rapt. Okay, so yeah. let's just let's Alvin just go. Williams, Antonio, like that was that was Antonio Davis. You know, Peter, I was good to uh, Peterson, Mo, Mo, Peterson, Morris Peterson. Yeah, Mo, yeah Morris. So, so, so this is this is what happened to me. So, as as I said, I would go to this, and I've said this story way too much on the pod, but it's 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 worth it for these for these foundational conversations. So, um, I would go to this to to this house and this kid had like basketball cards. So he would show me basically like Michael Jordan. He he had basketball cards and he had like the VHS tapes of Chicago Bulls games. So I'm four, five, six years old watching VHS, Scottie Pippen, Jordan, Rodman, and I'm getting hooked on basketball. So then we move and, and I was like, where did where did Michael Jordan go to college? And he said North Carolina. So that automatically meant that my favorite college was North Carolina. Little did I know that I would move there one day. Um, but that meant that I started paying way too much attention as a toddler, kid, youth, preteen, whatever it is, to University of North Carolina basketball. So 1998, they have Vince Carter and Anton Jameson. Yeah, yeah. And Anton Jameson was exact. They got traded for each other. Mm. So my choice was, do I want to go to Golden State with Anton, or do I want to go to <laughs> Toronto with Vince? 
and, and I'm Golden like, State back in the day wasn't like Golden State now. Exactly. That is very important to say. Yeah. But as a Canadian, I was like, of course, I'm a Toronto fan. So Vince, to this day, Vince Carter is my favorite basketball player. Yeah, same, same. Like you can't tell me, you can't tell me anything about Vince Carter. Like the the idea that I got to spend like I, he retired what two three years ago at like age 41, 42. People would ask, who's your favorite player? Vince Carter. He's 42. Yeah, he's, he's my <laughs> – that's my guy, Vince Carter. So ba- basketball is – again, as I say, it's it's my first love. Um, for sure. For, for, and, and, and when I was deciding what I wanted to write about and do in, like, the journalism writing field, I specifically picked football for a reason because it's my second favorite sport, and I didn't want to make basketball a job. Like, basketball is my escape. Like, I – I think I could have done better in terms of like this journalism space as a basketball writer, because I know basketball way better than I know football in terms of like the the tactical side and all of that. But I don't, I've never wanted to make basketball work. Football, I'm fine to make work. But that's the thing about like growing up in in a country like Canada or the States Mm. is that those, those sports are really so, so interesting. So cool. So I'm a big American football guy. I'm a big basketball guy for a year or two. I even followed baseball. (laughs) <laughs> and even now, like I'll for me, like the perfect Saturday afternoon. Now that I'm in France, sometimes I'll 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 miss Premier League matches, and I'll watch University of Michigan football game. You know, like a, a really good one if they're playing Ohio State or if they're playing oh. Michigan State. For me, that's you know, give me a bag of Doritos and a Monster Energy drink, and that's that's, <laughs> that's my afternoon made up. Yeah. So so, <laughs> but yeah, go. go no, go, I was go, just go. gonna say. So so I was really like I was raised in that sports culture, just growing up over there and being surrounded by brothers and cousins who are also very yeah. athletic. And it wasn't until 20, 2006, really, that World Cup with Zidane yeah. doing what he did. That really pulled me back in. That and the fact that my grandfather at the time was visiting us. My grandfather uh, was football crazy, too. He, um, he was one of Algeria's first ever referees. And his wow. English wasn't the greatest. My Arabic wasn't the greatest. And so when he would come over, he would just monopolize the television and just put, we fought, when we finally got to the satellite TV, mm-hmm. he would end up uh, putting things like Siri, uh, you know, boring games for me, but he would just watch them and, <laughs> and I would just watch it with him. And so mm-hmm. 2006 is when I really started paying attention really, really well. And this is something that's commonplace because I, 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 I don't know if this is something I'm doing intentionally but i most of the people i've interviewed are around my age so explaining to i guess kids these days if if you will i don't know if we're old enough to say kids these days but kids they don't understand the struggle my head they don't they don't get it they can watch football on the ipad on an iphone on the mac on the tv hook up the playstation and the xbox and football's just there all over the world you can watch football in thailand you could watch in you know in i I had to beg and plead and wash dishes and vacuum and sweep and all of the extra chores, mow grass to get one, two months of Satanta sport on the satellite dish and Fox <laughs> Soccer Plus. I, I don't know what it was in Canada, but that's what it was here. I think like, as you say, like 2006, 2007, you can just about start streaming games and then Wi-Fi hits and then obviously you can do it. But people, they don't they don't know that you couldn't talk on the phone and be on the Internet at the same time. Mm-hmm. They don't know those struggles. They don't know, bro. And people that are older than us are, are a lot chuckling, too, and saying, of course, I guess, yes, that it was but... hard for being you. But, yeah. <laughs> and um, but only really following 2006, I mean, speaking of journalism, that kind of made me feel like a father when I started. I started writing about football in 2013. So I'd only been really following. When I say really following, I mean watching weekly. I'm watching mm-hmm. every weekend. Uh, I know the squads. I know the players, everything. I only started doing that. So I'd only been doing it for seven years before I started writing about football. That kind of gave me imposter syndrome. But I was talking uh, with the wifey the other day, and I I realized that it's almost been 20 years now. You know, 2026 (laughs) is going to be since I've been really following football. So, uh, yeah, time flies. I have this – I have a writing project that I'm up to, and I was writing about why I don't like my football club, which is Chelsea. And near the end – I've been supporting this club for 20 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I got my start on video games like FIFA. I, I would assume for you, Pez FIFA is probably also important in the, in the equation because everybody, it's, it's important, especially for people in the States and I would assume Canada, that if you don't have access to the actual games, you have access to FIFA, Pez. So I picked my team based off FIFA. Chelsea were the best team in England that wore blue. I picked them. That was FIFA 2002. And I was like, bro, that's 20 years ago. It's it's not an imposter syndrome. 
it can't be at this point. Mm-mm. Yeah, now not anymore, not anymore. Yeah. Nah, definitely not. Because I, I I started writing about football in 13, 14 as well. So when I graduated. So um damn, I had a question and it escaped me. Ah, yes. Arsenal then. So so you said you had that that you you're not an Arsenal fan now, but you were. So so I have a I have a soft spot, but I'm not a supporter. I'm not watching every weekend. So so what what got you attached to that team in the first place? So like you know close enough to where you would think about it. Yeah. So I spoke about the '98 World Cup and Zidane being everyone's point of interest in my family. But me, I saw Thierry Henry. I saw sorry Emmanuel Petit. With his uh, ponytail and uh, low mm-hmm. socks, and I thought this guy's really cool. <laughs> so I'd asked my brother, "Who does he play for?" And he told me Arsenal. And since then, it was something as trivial as that. I just started supporting Arsenal, and then around the same time, the next year, I think Petit goes to Chelsea, but Arsenal signed Thierry Henry, and I fell in love with Henry. Would you have switched clubs if Henry never signs for Arsenal and Petit oh, I don't goes know. Chelsea? I, don't, I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea. I don't <laughs> think so. Something about the, the shirt after. Yeah, they are. Yeah, but I don't know. Something about the shirt. Something about the. I mean, it just. It's like I said, often it's trivial. You ask people why they started supporting clubs. Some people say, uh, my aunt was on holiday. She got me a, a shirt. And from then I just started supporting them. Some people like you, uh, it was video games. For some, It's just really, there's no reason for it. And then once you, once you're into it, you know, it's hard to, you know, it has its claws and it's hard to, to separate yourself after. So Henri was your, your gateway drug. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Arsenal are, they're a nasty club. And and is it is especially in terms of like the African diaspora, yeah, especially black people, but yeah. African diaspora in general. Thierry Henry takes care of like the Caribbean and just generally, right? But then you have Ian Wright who like attaches himself to like black British people, and then you yeah. have Kanu who attaches himself to like Nigerians and Africans. It's like okay, so three generational strikers play for this club, and then obviously you have Burkamp and Perez and those guys. So Venturous, they get yeah. you hooked. They get you hooked, yeah. and then <laughs> after they go undefeated, they haven't won a league until maybe this year. So it's been like Crazy, what, twenty yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, always think like those three: Ian Wright, Kanu, and especially Thierry Henry, are like gateway drugs for millions and millions of African people to just be miserable. <laughs> Henri, I think, was the was the height of it. And yeah, you're right. At yeah. the same time, like people loved the African. I know on, on, in, on the continent, people loved, you know, your Vieras, your Lawrence. Mm. Uh, Colo Toure at the time was breaking out in 03, 04. Um, that, that, and same thing with Chelsea. I know a lot of Africans Chelsea Ibuwe because Michael well. Essien. Yeah, Manuel Ibuwe, yeah. of course. Um, so that really was one of the reasons why it spoke to me too. Because it was Thierry Henri in 2006, he leaves after the Champions League final loss. And then I, lo- I love the aesthetics of that midfield. Uh, Rizitsky, Halab, Flamini, and Fabregas. For me, that was like such a, a great midfield. And they were close to winning the year, uh, the league that year, the, the year after Henri left, um, or two years after he left. Was that the year that I just, somebody broke their leg? Who was it? Uh, that was, uh, you're thinking about Eduardo? Eduardo, yeah. What, 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 what season was that? There was, there was, was one of those years. I think it was 2011. I think 2011, uh, 2012, where they were very, very, up until February, I think it was Birmingham City. Uh, and you're right, like, uh, there was, like, William Galas who threw a, a tantrum on the pitch, and people are talking about his leadership. And, yeah. um, no, but overall, like, there were always things that that kept drawing me to Arsenal, mm. really until, like, the, the last of the Wenger years. And, like I said, when they started signing players like Debussy, that's when I was just like, right, get me out of here. <laughs> but um, it got to the point where I was so passionate about the club that in 2011, yeah, 2011, I was working at a gas station and I would uh, work every Sunday just for four hours and I didn't touch a penny. Save, 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 save. And after six months, I uh, I went to three fixtures over there. So I went to, uh, it was Boxing Day, Arsenal versus Wolves in 2011. And then Arsenal versus QPR. I might've went to a, a, another another club after that, but mm. um, that was like, for me, like a, a spiritual trip too, because I got to, it just, I just put, it was so painstaking, took so long, and then going over there and going to the Emirates, and it was just, uh, it was a great trip, yeah. Maybe maybe we can circle back around the club football, but let's talk about Algeria. What is it like being a supporter of Algeria? Because I would assume that it's very frustrating, but I would like to hear it from the horse's mouth. 
Yeah, these days it's frustrating because I, I was thinking about this recently. Like one calendar year ago, we were on a 35 or 36 match unbeaten streak. We were African mm. champions, uh, FIFA Arab Cup champions. And there's a very good chance that we're going to go far in the AFCON and probably make the World Cup and make a run. And one year later, that's, that streak was snapped. No world, no world record. We're two matches away from that. Um, and then eliminated in the group stages of the AFCON, don't qualify to the World Cup. And it seems like the national team's in turmoil. So just in the state of a, mo- of a year, a calendar year, uh, things were flipped on its head. And that's what it's kind of been like being an Algerian fan these last few years. You'll have two, three great years, one, two, three catastrophic years. And there seems to be no just directional progress. So that can be a little bit frustrating uh, if you're supporting the national team. But it's still a great country to support because it's really good players. The fans are great. And I just love the African Cup of Nations. So for me, that's, I think, honestly, that's the uh, thing that makes me happiest in life is going to an Afghan tournament. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, th- I, mean, I was thinking, like, you said all those things that were going for him. I'm like, damn, I think Senegal are the beach champions. They're the Chan champions. They're the yeah. Afghan champions. Like, yeah. they've come for the crown that yeah. you guys look like you were going to have. Yep, exactly that. Yep. Uh, but that's how it goes. You know, it just takes, there's so many competitions, especially in Africa. We have chains every two years, AFCONs every two years that if you're not on your game, you can very easily be, uh, be out in the doldrums. We're very reversed in some way. Uganda is my country. If I were, if someone were to ask me the question, what country you do support, I support Uganda, but it's the, the reason I say it is because it's that we're reversed. It's because Uganda haven't really given me too many moments of happiness throughout my life. Mm. They, they qualified in my lifetime for their first AFCON, I think in 2017. 2019, so, I believe. Uh, 2017, maybe. Yeah. I think I, it, was, I think it was 2017. The two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they did back to back, which is, you know, cool. Yeah. But I'm just like, just give me a point. I don't want to win. Just a point where we don't disgrace ourselves with zero <laughs> in the group stage. But mm. um, so Chelsea are basically the club that have given me like the most joy in my life, I would say rather than than Uganda. Like, can I imagine Uganda in a World Cup? Maybe after they've extended it to like nine teams, maybe, but I doubt it. So I don't know if Uganda ever going to give me that joy, but I would assume as an Algerian fan, like they've given you some some moments of just joy as well. So Oh, yeah. Yeah, the 2014 World Cup, the 2019 AFCON definitely highlights, yeah. So what what is what what are your favorite just highlight moments of just being an Algeria supporter? And it could be something, it doesn't have to be a game, it could be something quite innocuous like fan culture or just something funny, but well what pulled me in in 2006, honestly, I was flipping through the channels at my cousin's place and I get on the Algerian State TV and Algeria's playing against Cape Verde Islands. And um just like a random qualifying match, and they win, I think, 2-0. 2-0, yeah. Or 2-1. I think it was 2-0. But just the, the amount of flares, the full you know, stadium, 67,000 people uh, in Algiers, that's what really drew me in, actually, was just seeing that. And honestly, I think that's what, again, gives me the most joy is when, I, when I'm, especially in person, and I get to feel the, the atmosphere. Um, that's what gives me the most joy. Um, mm. National anthem. I mean, it's very nationalistic of me, but I love the national anthem before the match. <laughs> Those are the moments that really, really pull me in. Um, it's not so much the accomplishments, but those accomplishments are special too. Like us losing to Germany in that, and was it the round? Of, yeah, the round of sixteen in twenty fourteen, and winning the Afcon in twenty nineteen just meant so much to so many different people and. There's like collective hysteria and you're just trying to find yourself within all of it, trying to situate yourself. How do I feel about this? And you're just trying to pay attention to your, what your feelings are because they're all over the place. Mm. So yeah, those moments are, are special. And like I said, between that, you have a lot of moments of, of frustration and, <laughs> and yeah, anger, loss. Yeah. Would you have been old enough for the, for the 2001 game against France? Uh. So I remember I, I watched the 98 World Cup. So I was I knew what football was. I understood the rules and everything. Mm. But I don't remember watching that match particularly. What I do remember is talking about it after. Like okay. seeing the highlights and talking about it with uh, with other Algerians. That is something that's crazy to me. 
of like <laughs> we're gonna have a game against France and Algeria, and we think it's gonna be like unity. <laughs> Yeah. And, and Algeria's <laughs> went to the stadium and like, ah, uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> this is no, happening. but like, we're laughing, but it, it was like, I think this... a lot of people were really sad, <laughs> especially French people. I think they were, they were the organizers of the match. They were really, really sad. There's that one um, clip of the, was it the, was, was she the minister for sport who was trying to tell the yeah. crowd, like, come back like yeah. that? <laughs> uh, I the, think like, the problem yeah. between France and Algeria, there's just so mm. much... Uh, unresolved, so many unresolved questions, mm. um, and until really they they sit down and they go over the past and they address it head on, then I think you can move forward with like a normal kind of relationship. But until then, and it still hasn't happened, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think you can pretend everything is okay and and have matches like this and expect people to act accordingly. Mm. Like Algeria, I find fascinating on many levels especially because to my knowledge actually well no that's not true but i was thinking like they're they're, they're one of the in, in in the 1960s we can say in that first wave of countries getting their independence i think how you guys were the only one that picked up the gun a lot of like ghana uganda kenya all those countries in the 50s and the 60s they got their independence like without having to shoot right. it out really you guys went to war for what six, seven years against the French? Eight years. Eight yeah, years. Eight years. 1954 it's, to 1962. Like that history is. It's yeah. Tough. It's honestly it's part and parcel of the fabric of the country, and mm. it's you feel it if you go there. Everything is named after you know we call them martyrs, after a martyr or after a significant date of the revolution. Uh, it's still very much something that affects Algerians. Every family has somebody you know that they lost in the. Algerian war against France, or at least stories about it. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's still, it's in the national anthem. It's, it's, it's everywhere. So you can't really escape it. Uh, I forget what I was going to, oh yeah. Um, in terms of, I mean, decolonization movements, the, the main difference is that, you know, for, let's take the neighbors, for example, Morocco and Morocco had a, had, a, had some freedom fighters. But not as many. I think they had there's, if I'm not mistaken, were in the couple of thousands. Um, and Tunisia also had some freedom fighters, not as much as Morocco, but they were protectorates. And they, by and large, I mean, also they, they were fighting politically. There were some fights, you know, physically, but by and large, it was mostly peaceful, like like you mentioned, diplomatic. Um, the difference with Algeria is that it wasn't a protectorate like Tunisia and Morocco. Algeria was a colony, mm. meaning what? Meaning it was like part of France. It wasn't that colony that we have. It was us. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, legisl- legislature, there's, you know, elected officials, you know, everything is, it's, it's by and large France. Um, and so that makes a divorce much, much uglier. And, and what also makes it uglier is that you have settlers, you have over a million French people and not just French people, people from Malta, from Greece, from Corsica, they're all coming down and uh, moving into Algeria. They eventually become the colon, that's what we call them, you know, colonizers in in every sense of the word. (laughs) Um, And so for them, leaving is very, very difficult too, because some of them were there for three, four generations. And when it's time for independence, they all go. It's like one of the biggest mass migrations of of humans in history in a matter of months, you know, 90% of them are probably gone. So, uh, there's like a lot of open wounds, uh, but the problem I think in general is that, in my opinion, uh, French politicians are not willing to go far enough uh, in recognizing the crimes of colonial France, not, not this France. And uh, until they do that and they have, you know, very honest reading of history, I don't think that, you know, people are going to get over it in Algeria. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Hmm. But some, sometimes I think, and, you know, this is one of those, it's easier to think about it from the outside than somebody who has like actual relatives and a lived experience with Algerians in Algeria. But fighting in some ways, and this is a crass statement perhaps, but it's almost better to fight it out and win outright than some of the more, I would call it the underhanded yeah, yeah, tactic yeah. of we, we, we've given you freedom. Like if you look at a country like Ivory Coast, for instance, 
they I don't they, they didn't have to fight France, but they had Hoyfit Boini there. Yeah. And he did the it's it's France Afrique, I believe is the policy. Where basically yeah. Ivory Coast was working hand in hand with France to destabilize countries in West Africa. It's very evident the neo-colonial project that work. And it's like, well, yeah. I think I, I think part of that is how freedom or independence rather was given. Mm. No, I mean, I don't want to comment on specific countries because it can be mm. insulting at times. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I can tell you at the time, no, at the time, it very much was a debate because before the FLN, you know, picked up the, the gun and, and fought the French physically, uh, there were like nationalism movements that mm. were mostly peaceful. There were things like Masali al-Hajj's um, political party that wanted, you know, an, an independent Algeria, but they were doing it diplomatically and politically. And it was very much, uh, if these debates were being held, you know, throughout the Algerian revolution, really, and across the decolonization movements in Africa as well. So people like Emile Cabral, Franz Fanon, I think initially were of the opinion that it might be a good idea to do things nonviolently. And then eventually they ended up becoming radicalized and coming to the same conclusion that you did, that we have to fight for this physically. <laughs> He's Algerian. He has yeah, Algerian yeah. nationality. Yeah, yeah. He's buried in Algeria, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it, I don't know. What, what I can tell you is that it's really, I, I, I think I would overall, I would agree with your assessment. Them fighting, I think was probably, it was very pricey because you lose, you know, hundreds, right. you know, tens of thousands of people. It's probably the case that I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I do think that even if there was no war, I think Algeria would have eventually been independent, uh, maybe 20, 30 years down the line, 10, 20, 30 years down the line. But again, what kind of independence would you have then? Mm. Like very much like you were saying. So, um, yeah, it's it's a special revolution for not just for the country, but for the entire continent, because a lot of people contributed to it. A lot of countries contributed to it as well. It was very symbolic. I think if there's one decolonization revolution that you're going to talk about or that you're going to study in university is probably the Algerian one. Mm. Reminds me, I need to watch the Battle of Algiers again. It's been yeah. a minute, but I need so to. <laughs> I need to fling that movie back off, man. It's a, it's, a, it's a really good film. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, my hair, questions. Here we go. What what did you study in university and what led you down the path of journalism? I studied philosophy and political a minor in political science, uh, which has nothing to do with anything. But um, journalism was honestly through Twitter. I was posting a lot about the Algerian national team and uh, I was writing on various blogs like sandalsforgoalpost.com. And eventually uh, just editors reached out to me before the 2014 World Cup and said, you know, we like your articles. Would you consider writing for us during the World Cup? And the 2014 World Cup is when I, January 2014 is when I officially got paid for my first article. And so mm -hmm. since then, I've considered myself a journalist. So, okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let you off the hook. So philosophy, why <laughs> philosophy in particular? And see, I took one philosophy class in university and it was so boring that even though now the like the philosophical ideas that I'm interested in whether it's you know Marx Hegel all of these different types of things I find myself interested in that but the class I took was so boring at the time I'm like I'm never taking another philosophy class if I can help it and I helped it so what drew you into 
philosophy. That's the word I'm looking for. Well, I think, first of all, I think everybody's fascinated with the concept, you know, in general. When mm. you study, you know, the major schools, if you study existentialism, if you say everybody's going to, we like to have debates about these kinds of things. <laughs> um, but the reading is what most people, I think, puts most people off because it's so <laughs> dense. And it's almost like a lot of the, the books are almost impossible to read if you don't have your, your professor breaking it down for you. Right. And if you guys don't discuss it in class, if you just try to read it at home, you're going to miss at least 50% of of what's being said. Um, what drew me to it at the time, I think when I left high school, I wanted to be a lawyer. And in mm. Canada, you can't go directly into law school. You need a, a degree of in anything. It can be music, it can be philosophy, it can be English, it can be uh, business. So I just needed any kind of bachelor's degree. And uh, philosophy was interesting to me because at the time, I think I was a little more religious and I was, uh, yeah, honestly, that's what it was. And I was like thinking about things a little bit more and trying to have these like, yeah, seeing these debates online, existence of God, things like that. So I think I was mostly trying to see what people were saying about Yo, who is all of that. There's a, there's a Muslim scholar. He's, he's passed on now. I think his name is Didit. Didit. Um, oh, uh, Ahmed Didat. Didat. That guy. I remember what, when I was in university. He's not a philosopher, I was, though. I, like I, I, I know, but like those, those, those are the kinds of videos that I like. I would sometimes yeah. watch. Like he would, they would debate the Bible and the Quran yeah. and all that. Like, like that stuff interests me. I know it's not philosophy, but yeah. But I, like, I still remember um, going into a class. I think it was in second year, and the professor on the first day telling us. Well, you guys are philosophy students. He's like, so pretty much what he told us was, if you have anything that you feel like you're 100% convinced about, anything that you feel very strongly in, be prepared to, to let that go. <laughs> that's what he said. <laughs> and honestly, that's that was kind of my experience. I think wow. philosophy taught me to think about things analytically, but then introduced me to so many different good ideas. And at times, these ideas were you know, polar opposites of one another. Hmm. It makes you think that, everything is relative. Truth is relative. I think that was my main takeaway. So I'm, I'm less staunch in, in my convictions nowadays. And uh, yeah, I like to give everything it's it's just to do in terms of arguments. I hear you on that one 100%. It's like, I like that I got into football writing without going to journalism school because like I, I did English. So I had kind of similar thoughts in terms of like law school, argument, all that kind of stuff. But somewhere along the line, I just got attached to books and writing and reading and different things. But understanding how to formulate arguments, what someone's trying to do with their words, like that kind of analytical thing really interests me. And I don't know if journalism students get that. I think they just like, I, I don't know what they do, but like the idea of knowing how to structure sentences and arguments in the written word is like really important. And I think that helps when I'm trying to write so and, and and I think people who that do different things then come to journalism. They come from a totally different angle yeah. than journalism. So I would feel like like a philosophy background and a political science background would really help you formulate different ways of writing about football. You know, it must. Absolutely. I think I think it helps. I think it helps. I mean, the the main drawback is, you know, at the very beginning, you're so slow and you don't understand how things work. So mm. I remember trying to go to my first event and trying to figure out how to obtain accreditation. Like, <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. And just having to rely on other journalists to help me out. But that's the main thing. Like, you don't learn how to do that. You never touch a camera. Whereas journalism students maybe, you know, have taken courses in that, yeah. you know. Um, you just don't know, like, how to pitch things. All of that just takes some time to learn. But within a year or two, usually pick it up. What was the other thing I was thinking about? Ah. Uh -huh. And this is just something that I'm just throwing this out there. It's like philosophy writers or, or philosophers aren't writers. Their job is to get whatever's in their head out and maybe make it a little bit more complicated than it has to be. So other philosophers can understand whatever they're up to. Right. But their job isn't like what our job is now, or I don't want to put myself on your level. Their, their, their job isn't what your job is now, for example, where you're trying to write to a particular audience and make sure that they understand yeah. the point. So you yeah. have to write it in a particular way. You have to craft it in a way that the every man can read it. Philosophers aren't interested in that the every man can read it, which is why, as you say, you need somebody to kind of walk you yeah. down the path and like kind of teach you what it is. But then again, like, aren't they teaching? Isn't your teacher teaching you what they think? 
based on what is written, not what's actually written. Like, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's just an element of that for sure. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it depends on the media outlet too. Some will, you know, not touch an article of yours that has very flowery prose, but like the BBC, the BBC has certain standards and ethics where, you know, it has to be universal language that anybody can understand. So it has to be pretty basic uh, in its tone and very obviously objective and neutral. So these are things that you pick up as well. So different publications have different standards too. How how did you decide that like, I'm going to move from Canada and I'm going to go to Algeria. I'm going to go to France. Like how did you, how did you reach these conclusions that you just needed to leave if you wanted to do what you needed to do? So the 2014 World Cup happens. I'm still a student in university. I cover it from afar. Uh, six months from then is the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations, which is supposed to take place in Morocco. And so I'm in the middle of a semester, the fall semester, and I'm talking to my parents and I'm asking them, would it be okay if I block a semester? And in January 2015, I go to Morocco and cover the AFCON. They weren't very receptive to it, but eventually they just said, okay, do whatever you, you got to do. We don't care. As long as you come back and you finish your school. I booked my ticket. I remember November, December, something like that. The Ebola outbreak happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and Morocco withdraws from hosting the tournament and Equatorial Guinea gets the yep. rights. Um, and for many different reasons, like, well, main one being monetary, I couldn't really go to Equatorial Guinea. Um, it's too expensive. It's too far of a trip. Um, and so what I did instead is that instead of going to Morocco, I just changed my ticket and I decided to go to Algeria and cover the tournament from there and teach English and see if I could live there. Because I, I, I was very conscious of, I know I can write well about football, but am I really a journalist if I'm not doing any field journalism, if I'm not on the ground, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I wanted to develop, you know, like a network of contacts and, and all of that. So I go in 2015 to Algeria, cover the outcome from there. Um, and then after that, I'm just teaching English and uh, going to as many different football matches as I can. And I realized that I love it. So after two, three months, I said, wow, this is amazing. I extend my my trip for another three, four months, uh, enjoy it. And then I go back to Canada just for six months, finish my school, save up a little money and uh, and move moved back full-time at the beginning of 2016. The first media group to, to reach out to me was The Telegraph. And I was writing monthly blogs for them about the Algerian national team. Very soon after, ESPN FC contacts me. And I'm writing a lot for them as well. And then Al Jazeera America. And it just, it seems like everybody was asking, you know, it's, journalism can be sometimes a very small circle of people. And it seems like everybody's just asking like, hey, do you know anybody that writes on about Algeria in English? And, mm-hmm. and once you have your foot in the door, it's it's pretty much easier to get by after because yeah, you know, the editors, they know you, they can reach out to you. If they need anything, you can pitch things. If you need anything, if you, if you think something's interesting. So it was just about getting, you know, my foot in the door because from 2012 to 2014, I really didn't know how I was going to break through. And once I did it, it just never stopped because 2015 is the year. Yassine Brahimi has an amazing year in the champions league. 2016 is when Riyad Mahrez and Leicester, you know, uh, go crazy. So it just never <laughs> stops after that. There's always something to write about, always something to cover. Mm. Um, are you comfortable more with the written word or more with the spoken word? Yeah, I'm definitely more comfortable with, with writing. Although I think I enjoy speaking more. I don't enjoy speaking when it's, you know, they, they ask you to come on for a television hit for four or five minutes. Mm. I hate that. <laughs> but uh, what I do enjoy is long form podcasts. I enjoy, or even long form radio segments uh, with the right people. You know, we do something called the World Football Phone-In on the BBC, on BBC Five Live. Yeah. And I just, I have a blast every single time. It's three hours long, but it's just (laughs) a place where I could just talk and talk and talk and bounce great ideas off of great people. And and that seems Mm. to work. So um, I prefer speaking, uh, but I I think only in certain formats. Otherwise, I prefer writing. But writing, it's a difficult one because if I really don't want to write the article, it's like pulling teeth. But if I'm inspired and motivated and really enjoying what I'm writing, then that's uh, that's something that I really enjoy too. So when, when was your first time on, was 14 your first time on camera as well? I don't I don't remember. First time actually on camera. At, yeah. At, I think it was 2017, I think. Uh, it was like a BBC television hit less than a minute. We call them rants. Um 
Yeah, just something that they use for uh, focus on Africa news segment in the evening. Mm. But uh, the first time I filmed something was 2016. I went to Riyad Mahrez's village and kind of filmed some stuff out there. Cool. So how, your your parents and we can end on this one because un- unlike you, I'm not great with like the three hour thing. I can my attention span is like an hour to an hour and twenty minutes. So, um, how have your parents kind of gravitated towards the career? Because in many experiences, especially the immigrant experience, you know, we get the doctor, lawyer, engineer. I want you to do yeah. something useful. Are you sure sports is a is that a good idea? All of these types of things. Like how how are your parents at the beginning and then i'm sure once you're on bbc like my, my boys on bbc like check it out yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's how it is but um how was that how was navigating the kind of parental well they, they were pretty like most parents don't uh, you know glowingly approve of you taking philosophy either so i think there was a certain <laughs> amount of yeah they gave me a certain amount of freedom straight out of high school cool um with my dad the main thing was uh I think he comes from a generation where benefits is the thing, you know, retirement, social security, all that, and mm-hmm. working as a freelance journalist. And these days, I think everything is freelance. I mean, take a look at Uber, Airbnb, you know, we're all sort of operating outside of, you know, structured jobs. I was just thinking that yeah. yesterday. Go yeah, for it, man. So uh, we're, we're very much moving towards the freelancization of, of the world. So I think on one hand, he's starting to understand that. But on the other hand, it was just like, yeah, okay, you're making enough money to live but you know uh what if you what if something happens what if you need what are you gonna do when you retire what are you gonna do this so he still he still bugs me about that a little bit but he's starting to to learn to accept it mm. with my mom and i think the rest of my family it was more a question of are you really gonna stay in algeria because they left algeria um and initially i think they thought it was a phase they thought it was you know he's gonna go for I remember my brother saying, I'll give you two years maximum. Saying something like that. Are you younger or older? Yeah, you're younger. Younger, oh, he's okay. older. Yeah, four or five years in, I think they realized that I was serious about living there. So that's the other thing is it sucks because you're away from family and at the same time you're you're back home. So if you know they my family likes to to come back every every year or so. So I get to see them when they come back. But the only thing that sucks about my job is that I'm away from my nuclear family. We have a quick fire around my hair. Are you ready? And it's quick fire in name only. You can take as much time with these questions as you need. All right. Um, so let's let's hit it. If you could be one footballer for a day, who would you be and why? Cristiano Ronaldo, because he's making $275 million <laughs> for two years or something. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> You were, so the money, you would go for the money. Okay. No, in all seriousness, I think if I, because you told me one day, but I think if I, if I wanted to be a footballer for forever, the respect with which Mohamed Abu Trika, the Egyptian midfielder is, mm. is held to is something that I, I think I aspire to and it, something that I very much would enjoy. Um, he is respected everywhere. It's very rare for a player to be respected, even in Algeria and Morocco, where they had big rivalries against a lot of these clubs and national teams. He's very, very much respected. So he's somebody that in the Arab world is like almost a demigod. What's a stadium you haven't been to yet that you'd like to visit? Oh, there are so many. I've only been to seven African countries, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to being around more. Um, let's see. That's a good question. I'd like to go to Naples Stadium, the Diego Maradona Stadium. Mm. Just to experience the Mediterranean, I experienced it in Marseille and Algiers and Tunis. I'd like to experience the Mediterranean atmosphere in, in Naples as well. Um, I'd like to experience a match in Istanbul. Same thing, the, the Mediterranean vibe of it all. And then mm. on the continent, uh, either Tata Rafael in DR Congo or Lubumbashi in DR Congo. Lubumbashi is where TP Mazembe play. And they don't have a running track, and it's just a great atmosphere that they generate. And Tata Rafael is where you had Rumble in the Jungle, and, and Kinshasa wow. can be a place that can generate a crazy atmosphere. Mm. I remember what you, you, you must know the video when you when you mentioned Naples, the one where like Gonzalo Higuain scores, and they have that guy on the map on on the mic. He's like mm. Gonzalo, and the whole state is like Higuain. I know, but like that that video so is like seared in my yeah. mind of like, yo, Naples is crazy. <laughs> I need to go. I need to go. Just again, I, I'm. There's a thing about the the Mediterranean in general that fascinates me. Why are atmospheres in Marseille, Napoli, and Algiers similar? 
you know, even though we're in different continents, you know, and I guess diets are similar, you know, we all eat olives and olive oil. And, <laughs> you know. and I just want to, what is it? I just want to investigate that a little bit more. What is it that pulls all of these people together across? The That's country? a book idea. Yeah, and maybe, olives yeah. is in the title, perhaps. Um, yeah. All right. Istanbul, the, Beirut. Yeah. The last good documentary you watched, if you watched them. Two on African football. One of them was one that CAF, the Confederation of African Football Commission, uh, and it's a, it was in celebration of the 60 years of 60 year anniversary of of CAF, and it was really good, but it wasn't better than the one that I believe it was a French channel. Canal Plus. You can find it on ina.fr. Ina.fr. It's the French National Institute of Archives, and you just search Football Africa. Mm. And there's a really, really good documentary about the history of African football that was released before the 2010 World Cup. So uh, there's two parts. It's almost two hours long, but it's so, so, so good. Is it subtitled? I don't believe it's subtitled. No, that's the, that's the You're problem. You're really going to test French. mon français? Yeah. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> All right. And there's, no, there's nothing about Uganda, unfortunately. Not even the, the 78 <laughs> legendary run. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm used to it, bro. It's fine. Um, your your favorite skill move? Uh, I love the roulette because of Zidane, but I think what I enjoy more is a good body feint, you know, like jabbing hard, stepping hard one way, but not touching the ball and the defender going with you. And then you just go the opposite direction with and, and take the ball with you. It's a really good body feint. If it's done well, I don't think there's anything better. Favorite TV show? I like Seinfeld. I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if that's great or not. <laughs> I really wa- I watched it twice in the last year or so. So I really like Seinfeld. Is there a good French television show that you're watching, like maybe on Netflix or that's on TV that people should check out? Mm. I'm, I'm I'm always interested in French television. Have, oh, have you you must have have you seen the show called Engrenage? Spirals no, is his name. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, that, good. I mean, I like it, but maybe I just like it because it's in French, and I'm trying to learn. Mm. You know, um, no, I haven't seen anything in French, to be honest. All right, um, which is next on the list? All right, <clears throat> I'm sorry, your house is on fire. You only have time to grab three things. What do you grab? Does my family count? <laughs> no, no, no. Your your family's gonna walk out. Possessions, yeah, possessions. Yeah, things. I'm gonna grab my laptop. Okay. I'm going to grab my documents because I have my documents in like this folder. <laughs> uh, I don't think anything else matters to me. Maybe. Yeah, that's it. My laptop, my hard drive and my, my documents, I think. Yeah. That's that's, great. that's I, the most important thing to me because it's just the work that I've saved on my laptop that I don't want to redo all over again. You know, the, the, the one I didn't think people would say that I would that I didn't think about when I wrote down the question was passport. People always waste a spot with the passport. Mm. I'm like, damn, maybe I should increase it to four, but three is always well, if, if I wasn't living in a place where you know I'm I'm essentially a foreigner, maybe I wouldn't go to documents. But you know, if I was just in Canada and I, I don't give a damn how long does it take to replace the passport. But because I have, you know, like my Algerian documents, my French documents, my Canadian documents all here. So I think it would mm. just be a, a mission and a hassle to go through all of that again. So. All right. So a country you haven't been to yet that you'd like to visit. Oh, I just want to go across the continent, man. 54 countries. I, I've, I've haven't been to nearly enough. Um, next on the list, if, if you're going to tell me, okay, pick a place to go in Africa tomorrow. Uh, probably Senegal, hmm. South Africa. And Tanzania, because I have a good friend from Tanzania that I'd like to talk about with. So I think Senegal, South Africa, and Tanzania are the two places. I was, I was, I was watching a clip of uh, Nerere the other day, and he was kind of explaining the ideas of, of why the country was formed like it was Tanzania, obviously. Um, it's just a very, like, it's a fascinating country, Tanzania, to me. Yeah, it's... Um, uh, also yeah. split up into like continental mainland and Zanzibar and mm-hmm. that's a whole completely different thing. And the, and the way they alternate the, presidents, it's just very, it's, it's a mm. very unique way that they've structured their country. That's like people, people always think like, Oh, the, the, the way the British do it or the way that the, the yeah, Americans have done it is the way, but there's there been a yeah. lot more innovative and new ways to formulate a country that have actually, can I bump Tanzania off? 
I'll, I'll bump them it. off and I'll, I'll put Ghana in there because Ghana for some, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but a lot of Mary, like black Americans are going to Ghana, African the year of return. Those yeah. Kinds of year of return, all that stuff. <laughs> Afrochella. There's just like a little bit of a, there's like a, a dynamic there. Mm. I kind of want to participate. In, kind of. I mean, I kind of think I know why they're up to that, but we can maybe yeah. leave that. <laughs> where, where are we? Okay. Here we go. The time football's made you the most sad. And this could be watching, playing, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really get too sad when I watch or play. Um, the one time where I felt like this is a very low moment for football is when Emiliano Sala, the Argentinian striker, um, he was going from Nantes to sign for Cardiff. Of course, his plane crashes, I think, in the English Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, he passes away and you have clubs fighting about do you have to pay the transfer fee or no? And that really made me feel like this is disgusting. You know, this is like modern football. I know 20 million is not nothing, but like, this is just, I don't know, somebody's dead and we're sitting here arguing about, you know, who's paying 20 million. Are you keeping it? Or are you not keeping it? So. Do you know, like I've on the podcast, I've had like, I've kept running tabs on this story because mm-hmm. it, it I, I felt the same way. It's just very, just disgusting in the way that they, they handled it. And like the pilot, I remember that like they didn't find the pilot's body, but they found Salah's body. It's just a, it's just a whole mess of a story, but I, I think Cardiff didn't want to pay Nantes. So then Cardiff were banned from making transfers until they paid Nas. And just recently, within the past month, two, three, like they they paid like one of the first installments for the transfer. And I think that happened in 2017 or 18, somewhere in there. It's like you've argued for years. Just dehumanizes. Exactly. It's just everything, you know. It's gross. Um, On a lighter note, the time football's made you most happy. You must have one of these at least. It has to be the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations final. I think I think so. Um, but honestly, it's whenever I'm at an AFCON, whenever I'm at an, I've been to 2017, 2019, 2021. So I've been to just three, four, no, three. Oh, just three. Okay, so Ivory Coast is going to be my fourth. And it's just always the, I have the best time every single time. Um, mm. Just meeting the colleagues that, you know, I communicate with all the time on Twitter. Um just yeah, try, discovering a new country, new food, watching as much football as I can. Instead <laughs> of five African teams at the World Cup, you have twenty-four African teams. You know, at an Afcon, so just a great celebration. I, I love that tournament. I hope forever it's going to stay. It's going to continue being a biennial tournament. I don't want it to become every four years. And yeah, I think that's honestly the. the if, you, <laughs> if you remove my family. <laughs> And you tell me what do you what are you looking forward to most like for the rest of your life you know until you pass away mm. I would say like going to the Afcon every two years. Uh, all right, last last question. This is this is one that we end with. We're making a music festival. You call it Coachella, Afrochella, whatever you want. And I need three headliners from you. I need a headliner for Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday. Dead night. or alive? Dead or alive is the is the question. It's going to be African themed. I'm going to go with um, uh, Rai singer Shab Khalid. Rai King Shab Khalid. He's really, really good. Algerian singer. Um, one of those artists that just has a catalog of 40, 50 tunes that are all certified hits. Mm. Um, Saturday evening is going to be Fela Kuti, Nigerian. On uh, Saturday, not Sunday. I'm going to go. Is Sunday supposed to be the 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 main event i'm not judging you it's 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 my hair fest you can do i was what thinking you want. saturday most people are going to be there so i'm okay it doesn't matter i mean for me there's very little in in it so i'll put him on saturday mm. you can't have two legends like that and then say like burn a boy or something it doesn't work you <laughs> know I, I, I love the music i love it it's really really good but i'm you know we're going from historic figures to um <laughs> I mean, the, I think the only artist that's pretty pretty much on that level is like Um Kiltum from Egypt, but she's like, it's almost like opera singing. It's Oriental. It's not very uh, music festival. I mean, um, I mean, if for 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 Saturday night, if we're trying to find one, 
I mean, you could go Miriam Makeba. You could go yeah, Huma yeah. Sakela. You could let's I mean, go. There's... Let's go Makeba. Let's go Makeba. Okay. Let's go Makeba Friday. Shabbat Saturday. Fella Kuti on Sunday. Now you're speaking my language. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're speaking my language. Uh, so yeah, those those are the quick fire questions. Actually, there's one last one. Is there anything coming out that people should know about or might need to know? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I'm just. <laughs> I have like zero like I, I don't even care like this year is just going to pass by I'm just waiting to go back to Algeria cover football over there and go to the AFCON I'm just <laughs> if I can press fast forward on my life for the next six months and just do that I'd be doing that at the moment I just have like, you, have you seen September, that Adam October. Sandler movie where he has like yeah, the click, remote yeah. and he can like that's exactly what's, what's what I want to do click I think. click yeah and I'm like I, I feel like yeah, the, the premise of that movie is actually quite interesting because it yeah. fast forwards through the moments that you've already fast forwarded through. So it's like he lost time in the effort to speed it up. I it's don't like, care. Wow. I wouldn't. I don't think I'd regret it. Just get me back to Algeria. But uh, I am like my one of my goals for this year is to be a YouTube partner. So if anybody's listening to this and they feel like subscribing to my YouTube channel, please do that. I need to get to a thousand subscribers and four thousand watch hours. I'm just going to be producing a lot of content on African football this year, bro. I, the link to my hair's YouTube channel is in the description. I think I've already subbed, so I can't help in that sense. But we can help. Subscribe to my hair's YouTube channel and get what is it called? YouTube partner. Yeah, give me a YouTube partner. There we go. All right. I thank you for taking the time to rap with me. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, man. Always. Indeed. Sports Social Podcast Network.